Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Ah, it's our tell show for Thursday, January 20th, 2022, the year of our Lord rolls on. Hope you are, are well, wherever you are across the street or around the world. Plenty to get to on today's Herd Tell, plenty of noise in the news cycle to turn down. Uh, we're going to go across the pond, talk some UK politics. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson had a very rough day at Prime Minister Questions on Wednesday. We're going to get into that with Portia Barry Kilby. Uh, talk a little UK politics with her, one of our great contributors from Young Voices UK. I'm going to defend Little Caesars Pizza, uh, a great American institution that has been unfairly besmirched by food snobs. We'll get into that. Uh, we're going to update a big story that we've been covering that not enough other people have been. Remember, Addison Hosner was on talking about the insider trader scandal in Congress. There's an update on that from NPR of all places. We'll get into that a little later on the show. And also a drone strike that actually saved somebody's life. We'll end the program with that story. But first, let's start with the Biden administration. Um, we're, he's giving his press conference the big reset. I'm not saying memos went out, but uh, just take a glance at some headlines here. CNN, Joe Biden enters the second year of his presidency looking for a reset after a tumultuous first 12 months. Uh, NBC News, White House plots public reset as Biden agenda fails. Um, moving on down, New York Times, frustrated Democrats call for a reset ahead of midterm elections. Boy, this word just keeps popping up over and over again. Uh, Politico, rules need to be clear. Dems call for COVID strategy reset as cases spike. Um, the vice president got roped into this. Washington Post, Harris team looks to course change to reset her political ambitions. That's amazing. USA Today, Biden must reset his agenda, learn from FDR, God, not this again, after Joe Manchin decision, uh, just going through here again and again and again, reset, reset, reset. Even the president's own people were presaging his press conference with reset. Folks, Joe Biden is the age he is. He's been in Washington nearly 50 years. You cannot reset Joe Biden. Joe Biden is who Joe Biden is. Now, he can try to change course on a couple things, but he has a 50-50 Senate. He's probably going to lose the House in the midterm. He has all sorts of things going against him, some of his own making, some not. But you can't remake Joe Biden to be anything other than Joe Biden. This is something we talked about uh, back during the campaign. His mandate that made him president was don't be Trump. He got elected because he was not Donald Trump. Not being Donald Trump did not magically make Joe Biden anything other than Joe Biden. It didn't make him a better leader, didn't make him a better president, didn't make him 
anything that he wasn't already in his half a century of public service in Washington, D.C. Joe Biden was always a get along and be along Democrat. He was usually in the medium of his party. He had a few moments. He had a lot of crazy moments. Remember, he was basically a kind of a running joke during the Obama administration. Remember Sheriff Joe? Uh, Some folks thought that was a compliment. Not really. Remember uh, during the State of the Union when Joe Biden was handed the task of curing cancer, among other things. Joe Biden is who he is. He's an affable enough man. When the aw shuck stuff doesn't work, though, he has a short temper and goes to that. He can be hard to work with. He has overblown ideas on what to do on things like foreign policy and legislation. His entire record is well developed. It's well fleshed out. It's all there for the reading. If you didn't do the homework on who Joe Biden was going into the 2020 election or you just thought he would be fantastic because he's not Trump, fine. But if you didn't do the homework, that's on you. This is who Joe Biden is. He's never been a leader. He's never been at the front of the pack on anything other than the crime bill back in the 90s, which he probably doesn't want to talk about nowadays and has disowned large portions of. He's had horrible decisions and policy. He's had some good stuff. He was in the medium of his party for most of his career. He can't do that as president because, as somebody on Twitter joked, and I can't remember, I would cite it. The problem with the Democratic Party is they have candidates that are all over 70 and they have staffers that are all under 40. His staffers and his staff at the White House are more to the left of him than he normally is. So he's moving more to his left. We knew that was going to come. We predicted that. That's the natural course of events in a Democratic Party that is moving ever so slightly, not fast enough for some of our progressive friends to the left. He's not in normal territory here. He doesn't have control over the COVID epidemic. He doesn't have any control over the Senate because it's 50-50, even with Vice President Harris casting a tie-breaking vote. He's got a lot of issues on his plate. The coming midterms are all going to be about COVID and the economy. Now, people, they're going to talk about other things like January 6th. They're going to talk about policy stuff. I suspect they'll try to break up the Build Back Better agenda and pass it piecemeal so they at least get some wins. But that's going to be it. And it's probably not going to go super well historically and cyclically. Midterm elections don't go well for an in-party, in-power party. Joe Biden's still going to be Joe Biden next year. He's going to be Joe Biden in 2023. He's going to be Joe Biden in 2024. Joe Biden isn't changing. You're not going to reset Joe Biden and who he is. And people have figured out who he is. They know who he is. And they thought he would be a better alternative to Donald Trump. That got him to be president. But that's all. Everything from then on was going to be on him and his administration. And they're failing on a lot of things they promised, not just from the right and criticisms from across the aisle. His own party is whispering and complaining, especially the progressive wing of it. It's something to keep an eye on. Joe Biden's Joe Biden. You can do this reset narrative all you want, but you're not going to change him. He's not going to magically become a better communicator or a better leader or a better administrator, especially at this this stage of the game at the age he is at. Joe Biden is all you got. You're not going to reset it. Reset's what you do to the video game when you're so frustrated you don't know what else to do, so you hit the reset button and start over. There's none of that in politics. Joe Biden reset, that's a lot of news cycle noise, and we turn down noise here. There's not going to be a reset. This is what it is. You've got a 50-50 Senate, and you got a midterm election coming up in just over 10 months. Good luck.
Moving on to another story that broke that we left alone because it didn't feel right and we were vindicated in doing so. Um, did you catch this Supreme Court kerfluffle? Uh, Nina Tottenberg, who's long been a reporter with NPR, commentator, on-air host, released a story uh, about Justice Sotomayor, Justice Gorsuch, and Chief Justice Roberts. And the gist of the story, uh, this is dated, I'm sorry, this is dated January 18th from Nina Tottenberg in NPR. It was pretty jarring earlier this month when the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court took the bench for the first time since Omicron surged over the holidays. All were now wearing masks except for Neil Gorsuch. What's more, Justice Sotomayor was not there at all, choosing instead to participate through a microphone in her chambers. Sotomayor has diabetes, a condition that puts her at high risk for serious illness or even death from COVID-19. She has been the only justice to wear a mask on the bench since last fall when amid a marked decline in COVID-19 cases, the justices resumed in-person arguments for the first time since the onset of the pandemic. Now, though, the situation has changed through the Omicron surge. According to court sources, Sotomayor did not feel safe in close proximity to people who were not who were unmasked. Chief Justice John Roberts, understanding that in some form, asked the other justices to mask up. They all did, except Gorsuch. This is Nina Tottenberg's NPR article from the 18th I'm reading from. All except Gorsuch, who, as it happens, sits next to Sotomayor on the bench. They sit according to seniority. His continued refusal since then has also meant that Sotomayor, Sotomayor has not attended the justice's weekly constant conference in person, joining instead by telephone. Gorsuch, from the beginning of her tenure, has proven to be a prickly justice, not exactly beloved, even by his conservative soulmates on the court, and the piece goes on from there. There's only one problem. Next day, on Wednesday, Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch released a joint statement, and releasing statements to press stories is very rare for the Supreme Court, saying this was nonsense. It didn't happen. They get along. They disagree on things, but they are colleagues that get along well, and this did not happen. A couple hours later, uh, Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice Roberts came out with his own statement saying he didn't tell anybody to mask up. Now, you can say that Nina Tottenberg has better sources than one third of the Supreme Court, but I doubt it. This is another good example of what we talk about on Herd Tell about turning down the noise. When this story broke out, everybody kind of manned their ramparts and went to war, and it was a day of hate on Neil Gorsuch's head because obviously folks on the left don't like him very much. I kind of left that story alone because, one, it was it was uh, anonymously sourced. Two, it just felt a little too convenient. You don't lose any social media points by just not commenting on a story. You know, we joke when there's a mass shooting or a massive story breaks, and we talk about the 24-hour rule on Twitter of wait 24 hours before commenting because all those initial reports are usually bad. You don't ever lose social media points or societal points for just waiting. Let it breathe. Let it develop. In this case, this story took a major turn the next day when a third of the Supreme Court and all three principals in this story came out and said it didn't happen and there's nothing to it. We didn't have to retract anything because we didn't jump all over it. Now, sometimes we get it wrong, too, and we do all admit we're wrong. But a lot of people, even with three Supreme Court justices saying it didn't happen, are still sticking to it on social media because it fits their narrative. Politics can just break some folks' brains. It's sad, but when you get information, you need to adjust and move on. This story very clearly was not properly sourced. This story, I don't think, by the way, that Nina Tottenberg made this up. I don't think she just pulled it out of whole cloth. I think she was fed a story and didn't do her due diligence. That's just a guess. So I think she was fed a story. It sounded too good to be true. She ran with it. She didn't properly source it. And now she ends up looking silly. 
And a lot of people online look silly, especially the ones that won't just say, okay, I got that one wrong. I fell for it. I shouldn't have done that. Too many people are still trying to argue it online. You have to be flexible with new information. If you're wrong, just say you're wrong and adjust. There's nothing wrong with getting a story wrong. Even as hard as we try here, we'll get stories wrong. We may run a story that turns out to be different after the fact. Just admit you're wrong and move on. You don't lose any points for that, but you can lose reputation points for going to the mat for something that never happened in the first place. So moral of the story, let things breathe. In the media, much like in life, if it sounds too good to be true or it really super fits your narrative, maybe hold off on smashing that send button or sending the tweet or posting that Facebook hot take for a minute. Let it breathe, especially if it's something you don't know about, like the Supreme Court, which is notoriously hard to get information about what goes on behind closed doors on because those guys don't talk to anybody. Let things breathe. It doesn't cost you anything. Don't contribute to the noise of the news cycle. Be one of those people contributing to turning down the noise and getting the good information. In this case, the good information came from the primary principles involved in three Supreme Court justices. Maybe Nina Cottenberg has better sources than them, but I'm going to take one third of the Supreme Court's word for it over hers, that this story didn't have much to it. It's a lesson for us all to learn. Let's all try to do a little better in our own social media. We like to blame the news media and network media when they get it wrong, but we need to make sure we're getting it right too to do our part. We'll do a whole lot more Hertel right after this. Hertel Show, welcome back. Uh, lighthearted note uh, from our buddy Abby Wolf sent me this. Uh, humanprogress.org. Even with the recent price increases, Little Caesars sold pizzas have become 80% more abundant since 19, 1997. Uh, Little Caesars, of course, for those that you that don't pizza pizza, is famous for a lot of things, but one of them is their $5 hot and ready. You grab it and you just go with it. Um, from Human Progress, the pizza chain Little Caesars is raising the price of its pizza for the first time. But even with that, their product is going through the roof. Uh, the New York Post reports that the price of the per- promotional pie, which was first advertised with shaker boards, is increasing to $5.55. So no longer a $5 hot and ready. It's now $5.55. Little Caesars CEO Dave Scervino said the price hike is meant to balance raising labor and commodity costs, as well as the price of pepperoni has soared by more than 50% over the course of the pandemic. However, after considering the recent price increase, these pizzas are still 44% less expensive today than they were in 1997. That means you get 80% more pizza for your time today than 25 years ago. The pizza abundance has thus grown at 2.3% a year. COVID may have claimed another victim one that will be sadly missed in dorm rooms across the world unless students can find 55 extra cents in their sofa cushions. But I digress from the piece because it's not just students. I'm telling you from experience. Uh, Back when the Ordinary Times did their little pizza symposium, I actually wrote about Little Caesar's Pizza. 
I wrote about it like this. Who would have thunk it that us lowly rabble might need a low-cost option, one where the whole pizza is the price other places charge just for the delivery? How elitist of them, the snobbery, the effrontery. But the thing is, it's not bad pizza by any means. The dough is made fresh daily on the premises, and the crazy, crazy bread is soft, garlicky deliciousness. And the deep dish, the $8 alternative to the regular $5 hot and ready pie, is great if you like a thick crust more akin to pizza cake than some wafer-thin artisanal offering. Nothing wrong with that, but we are trying to feed a nation on the cheap here to put the substance in substance, if you will, and a glorified cheese cracker isn't going to cut it to the hungry, income-enabled masses. For cheaper than you can get less offerings from the freezer at your grocer, Little Caesars can have you in, out, and stealing a bite the second you clear the door or the drive through window, if you so wish. Little Caesars is pizza pizza for the people, the real everyday salt of the earth people who want to walk in or drive up, grab it and go without anything further process encumbering them. Like their fellow innovators and titans of giving the people what they want, McDonald's and Walmart, Little Caesars has become unjustly derided, mocked, ridiculed, and looked down upon. It is a grave injustice to the American way to not realize the power that is feeding your family on short notice with the change in your car. The concept and the convenience is what keeps the pizza pizza flying off the shelves. Little Caesars has always had a limited time only promotions to keep it fresh for the masses, but that is the convenience that keeps them coming back for more. Not that we don't enjoy pizza by the foot, if you remember that from the 90s, or wrapped in six feet of bacon like a promotional a couple years ago did, or the dozens of other crazy things Little Caesars has tried over the years to sell more pizza pizza. But it's that unbeatable combination of value and convenience that keeps frazzled parents, youth group leaders, and that person that forgot it was their turn to bring the snacks coming back again and again. So the elites may turn their noses up and the purveyors of the hot cuisine that's hot as in French fancy, not hot as in hot and ready, for those of you from Logan. Or the beginning of a long, hard night. Perhaps the food critics at flagship publications won't darken the door of their local strip mall Little Caesars for their $5 lunch deal. A single-serve deep dish that could easily feed two people or more and a drink. Food Network probably won't send anyone to taste the wares or chronicle the eternal debate among the great unwashed masses of cheese or pepperoni, $5 hot and ready, but that's fine. Because for a pizza chain that doesn't deliver, Little Caesars sure does make a lot of meals for a lot of folks. Not to mention that as a company, they deliver more than just pizza. We go on to detail their charity work. That's me writing in Ordinary-Times.com back in September of 2019 for the Pizza Symposium. I love Little Caesars. No, it's not the best pizza in the world. But I'm telling you, as a parent, when it's 6.54 on a Tuesday evening and you just need to throw some hot food in the gullets of the kids to get them to shut up, God bless Little Caesars $5 hot and readies. And I don't care who thinks poorly of it. It's pretty good pizza. More Herd Tell right after this. Ah, it's our tell show. Thank you for coming back with us. Appreciate it. We're going back overseas. A little UK politics and news. Another one of our great Young Voices contributor, Portia Barry Kilby uh, from over yonder, but she's also over here back and forth, a uh, graduate of Harvard. We might get her Boston impression later on, the pride of Leicestershire, England. How are you, ma'am? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thrilled to have you with us. Uh, it's been a minute since we uh, went back overseas and checked in with our friends. 
but uh, just to give a little bit of the background, if we go back about a year, uh, the Labor Party was at a very low point. Uh, they were losing elections in places they had never lost elections. Boris Johnson seemed to be riding high on the hog, as we would say, down in the South. Uh, this is a very different situation now. He has the approval rating of a cholera outbreak and things are not going well for him. What happened? That is all very true, Andrew. I think, well, today Labour gained another member. So I think they're in an even happier point than they were. But basically with COVID, the restrictions put in place, it has transpired that various top people working for the Prime Minister weren't always following those restrictions. And a whole saga of different parties have emerged that were being thrown way back when in 2020, as well as more recently breaking the rules. And the one which really seems to have hit the nail on the coffin, like the last nail on the coffin, is the one that happened the night before Prince Philip's funeral. So there have been very stark images of the Queen sat alone at that funeral. And it's then emerged a couple of weeks ago that number 10 were having a rager the night before, which seems to have riled everyone's feathers um, on all sides. Now, um, the problem with this is, like lots of scandals, is the cover-up has actually become worse than the actual offence. Uh, the story keeps changing. Uh, in fact, uh, Prime Minister question one, well, I'll have you break that down in a minute, but the very first one, uh, the member of parliament just detailed it like, well, three weeks ago, this was a story. And two weeks ago, this was a story. And yesterday, this was the story. And now this morning, this is the story. Uh, Boris sure does seem to need to just put the shovel down because everything he seems to be doing and his surrogates and his cabinet right now just seems to be making this worse, doesn't it? He's not really got out of the sticky situation anytime soon. There's a chief civil servant leading an inquiry into whether any rules were break, broke, broken and how many were. And Boris's line of argument has been kind of memed saying, I can't possibly say if I was at a party until the investigation is complete. That will tell me if I was there, uh, which isn't quite what he said, but it seems to he's definitely dodging the questions and apologizing in very caveated terms. So which is typical politics, and he can't admit to something too readily because then it will backfire on him. But obviously, if there was a party in his building, even if he wasn't there, he sets the tone. And if he's permitting parties to go ahead, there's something to be apologized for, given that. Yeah. Portia Barry Kilby joining us on Herd Tell. Uh, of course, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Uh, Boris Johnson is a big personality. He's an outspoken personality. Uh, he rubs people the wrong way. He wears people out. Um, therefore, when he goes to something like this, where now he wants to be dodgy and go uh, again this morning when he had calls to resign, he goes, well, we haven't even had the inquiry yet, but he won't say what he did and didn't do because he's waiting for the inquiry to tell him what he did and didn't do. Uh, just to the average person, even if they're not in the politics, that really strikes as hypocritical. It strikes as not being honest because it's counter to his normal personality. And it just becomes really, really glaringly obvious. It's something's not right. And he's feeling a whole lot of pressure, doesn't it? 
I think that's very fair. And I think his main line of defense is these were people working in person and therefore they were working just with alcohol. It's a good part of British culture, which wasn't always overspilling in the US culture. But, you know, having a boozy lunch, it's part of life in many places, especially Westminster. But at the same time, there are limits. And given COVID rules, a little more caution would have been desired. But it is interesting that these stories are all being leaked now because these people have known they've been going on um, since they happened. And it's all coming to the surface now, which makes you think people want Boris out. Right. And we're not Pollyannish here. We understand there's always politics involved in this. So the knives come out when you have an unpopular leader. That's the politics side of it. Uh, For us in the American audience and the worldwide audience, though, talk about the policy side of it, because the other part of this was there was restrictions. Uh, This morning, uh, Prime Minister Johnson's talking about repealing the Plan B restrictions. Just talk about what the UK has been dealing with restrictions. And that way it kind of contrasts and tells us why it was such a big deal that they were doing this kind of party and stuff. What have been the restrictions have been and what are they talking about with these Plan B restrictions uh, being lifted now? So at the time of the parties, especially at the time of Prince Philip's funeral, people couldn't see couldn't have many people all in one space. There were people going to hospital alone, not allowing visitors. It was very much deep, dark COVID draconian measures back in April. By this point, we're pretty much way ahead of everyone else in terms of the freedom restored to us. And we had a few face mask mandates imposed for a short time. And similarly, work from home orders given just before Christmas which was deemed Plan B. Not the best sounding name, I think you might think, but that's now being all repealed back and no more face masks, no more working from home orders in place. And the vaccine passports they had introduced for certain venues are also being scrapped. So a good day in terms of restrictions easing, if not for Boris Johnson more generally. Is it enough to break through? Uh, He's thrown a couple things at the wall here. The plan B restrictions are being removed. Uh, He's kind of gone to an old favorite of his. He's fighting with the BBC publicly, including holding back funding for them. Uh, But a lot of the commentators that we review and talk to about the UK says this stuff is not burning through. The public is upset. Uh, His own conservative party is upset. Obviously, the Labour Party smells blood in the water after a very, very dark couple of years for them. Uh, is it going to help or is he just too far down in the hole, do you think? I think it is helping, but at the same time, he has more to do. I think it's good to see Boris kind of bouncing back to being Boris rather than imposing more restrictions. But at the same time, it really has struck a chord with the public. People are angry and I think on a whole scale greater than what would have been expected. So Boris does have to do a lot. And at the same time, he's repealed all of these restrictions A lot of the public are quite concerned about COVID. The messaging around Omicron was all very scaremongering and doom and gloom. So to then suddenly do a 360, you do have to think, is this actually going to play well to the people you need on board, especially the Red Wall voters um, and the new intake of MPs from 2019? Boris, it's not over for him yet. He needs to push a bit harder, but at the same time, it's not written off. There's no one else really primed to take over immediately. So I think he'll be left in dangling by a thread for a little longer. 
Right. And part of the story there, you mentioned the 2019 MPs that came on board. There was quite a few uh, in areas that had never been anything but labor in recorded history, really. Uh, is there that concern? I know you said there's no hair apparent. That's part of the thing that might keep him safe. But is there concern that they're going to lose some of this newfound ground uh, electorally in the meantime or until the next general election? Because they had so many close together, there's probably not a danger of a general election anytime soon. But that concern has to be there, doesn't there? A hundred percent. And so many of those MPs won by such small margins, first time ever, and actually with very little political experience under the belt. So they are getting a little on edge now. And we saw today one of those new intake MPs announced at Prime Minister's Questions, which is the weekly scrutiny session, shall we say, walked over to the other side and defected to Labour because he had more faith in the leader of the party, Keir Starmer, than in Boris Johnson, which kind of shows, you know, the real nuanced political conversations some of those new MPs are able to have, which is none. Um, And it's a bit flat, but that's what it's going to be. He cares about his future political career and the Labour Party will likely give that to him at this point in time than Conservatives. But at the same time, it's been a good over a decade of the Conservative Party. So, you know, all of the jollity has to come to an end soon. They can't go on forever. Yeah. And he will never be as popular or as cheered as he was this morning by the Labour side of the House. Uh, He was a very popular fellow at PMQs. We're going to get into those PMQs, how that system works. We're going to talk about Keir Starmer and the wider uh, British politics and then bring that back to some of uh, American things as well when we come back on Hertel. Portia Berry, Kilby with us from Young Voices, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing with Portia Barry Kilby, uh, who is a graduate of Harvard, but hails from England. You'll know this as soon as she starts speaking again with that wonderful accent of hers. Uh, something very uniquely English. I love it because I'm a glutton for political punishment. Uh, but every Wednesday morning for us, Wednesday afternoon for y'all with the time difference, you have prime, prime minister questions. Uh, so Boris Johnson has to stand in the house and he gets really taken to it today on days like today with scandals burgeoning. Real quick, though, for folks that aren't familiar with the parliamentary system, why is that so unique that you have that prime minister question every week and your leadership, whichever party has the leadership, they really do have to kind of stand and face the music? Exactly. And it's the standing and facing the music, which is so unique. You have all of your MPs, all of the opposition MPs scrutinizing you. You are there held to account, often with very carefully crafted responses to the questions. And if it's on your side of the house, you'll know the question you're going to get. So it's easy to position yourself as more effective than perhaps you might be otherwise. But the prime minister is there every week for 30 minutes and has to take questions from all sides. It's a good face-to-face dimension of the UK system and also the good heckling as well to go with it. So a bit of drama and pump as well. Yeah, some days are more boring. The the running joke, of course, is there's always some MP you've never heard of that wants you to come look at their train station. Uh, But today was not one of those. Uh, Today was a lot of high drama. Uh, it wasn't quite the Brexit level vitriol, but it got pretty intense today for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, didn't it? 
It did very much so. On the other side, Labour were hammering on about the parties, but it was party, party, party in terms of their attack against him. And I think one area where Keir Starmer let himself down was he was fairly jocular. There were lots of fairly cheap jokes, somewhat rather funny, but he was making light of the situation, which for a lot of the public is very serious and it's an angry thing. So I think maybe Labour misjudged it in terms of tone, but they kept on going with the same line of attack. Yeah, and why wouldn't they? Uh, You bring up Keir Starmer, uh, an interesting figure because he basically had a mandate of don't be Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, we know that labor was decimated under Corbyn's leadership. We know the controversies with Corbyn, uh, the accusations of anti-Semitism. He obviously didn't have control of the party. They got electorally wiped out, as we've already mentioned in the 2019 elections. What, what's the read on Starmer? Is, is he doing a good job? Is he a placeholder? Is he just kind of lucking out because Boris Johnson has done some self-inflicted wounds here? What, what's the read on him right now? I think Keir Starmer has the party, the Labour Party, in a much safer place than it was under Jeremy Corbyn. But at the same time, I think Boris's performance with the party gate, shall we call it, is boosting Keir. And any Labour leader at this point in time, although maybe Corbyn wouldn't be so successful, should have a fairly cushy position. It's been a long time of the Conservative Party in power, and people are inevitably going to get tired of that, unfortunately. And the Labour Party is there with a somewhat boring, but also fairly unobjectionable man in charge. Policy-wise, is anything really getting discussed right now? We have this uh, back and forth over the scandal. COVID's dominating everything else. Um, before this, though, there was real economic concerns. There's the uh, migrant crisis. Uh, there's been months and months of really heated rhetoric with France, which England and France, that's nothing new, but we haven't seen it at this level for quite some time. Um, this seems to be drowning out a lot of those other issues, but electorally, is there any appetite for those issues or is it just all COVID and scandal right now? It is a lot of COVID and scandal, but at the same time, energy prices have really hit the front pages of prices expecting to skyrocket and various things that could be done to prevent that cost of living hitting the average voter, uh, but nothing really being done. So today, Labour presented their plan if they were in power, which they're not, and attacked the Conservatives for so far having done nothing. So it's those things do get some cut through, but until that actually hits people's pockets, it's the parties and the regret of having spent so long in lockdown not seeing people that's really resonating with the voters. What would break through? Is it the energy crisis? Is it the migrant issue in the channel that's, that was getting headlines before the party gate kind of knocked it off? Um, the north of England is not happy. You always have issues with uh, Scotland and the Independence Party. Uh, what do you think is a policy thing that might burn through some of this? I think the energy crisis and cost of living are definitely things that could take hold, especially as national insurance contributions are set to rise in April as well. I think the whole cost of living saga will be a big challenge for the Conservative Party to tackle, especially when they've had a very generous furlough scheme for workers during covid it's not the best situation in terms of money right now. And there are by-elections in May coming up. So it's likely the Conservatives will take a hit then. And 
is just going to be compounded. I don't think Partygate will be forgotten by May. And by that point, cost of living will also be taking a hit. And uh, in America, we're dealing with uh, inflationary concerns, cost of food, cost of groceries, things like that. Has that been an issue uh, in the UK and England also? Because we we heard a little bit of rumbling over Christmas about some of the food costs and things like that from our UK friends. Is that going to be a pressing issue or do they think there's going to be some policy changes with maybe the lifting of the COVID restrictions where the supply side of the economy starts to balance out a little bit more? I think there is hope that it starts to balance out a little bit more. And if there are one thing that's dominated in the British news has been food shortages um, intermittently during COVID. But then there's always arguments on the other side that it's not really a shortage and it's sensationalism by the media. You're concerned about the cost of living. Uh, they've talked about a rise in food banks in the UK. Uh, back during the holidays, they talked about, you know, uh, Christmas in a can kind of became a, a little bit of a running joke in some media terms. Is the policy things that uh, Boris Johnson could do right now, is it a matter of you think policy-wise they should just wait it out? Or is this one of the things where there'll be immense pressure to try to do something and the do something may actually end up being worse long-term? No, well, I think there will be an immense pressure to actually do something, especially with April and cost of living rising for people across the board. The Conservatives have pledged to level up the country and invest in local areas. But that's not really going to have a tangible impact on people if they then can't afford basics, be that groceries, be that their energy bills. So there is a balance to be made. And if that is increasing national insurance to pay off the debt that's been accrued due to COVID, that's one argument, but it can't be at the cost of neglecting uh, the average person's pocket and the impact it will have for them. In America, we have a real problem with having financial problems as a country, of course, our national debt, things like that. But the average person just doesn't really seem to care about it enough to make it a political issue. Is that the same in the UK? Do they worry about things like debt? Do they worry about the cost of these? Y'all call them schemes, not in a bad way. We do. That's just how you say it. Uh, these schemes to help the economy, to help workers during COVID. Is there a concern about those kind of fiscal issues or is it just something that they just kind of take in due course? I think there is sometimes from focus groups I've sat in on, there's always a slight worry that the government is spending too much. Uh, but it's more like where is the money coming from is all have I want an answer to and inevitably there is that understanding that is going to be paid for eventually by increased tax uh, one way or another. consensus is what more can you get so people know it's going to hit them they just don't always know how much and it's always easy to say one percent rise is fine until you see that's x amount hundreds of pounds a year that you just don't have yeah Portia Barry Kilby talking UK politics for us. To bring this back to where we started, though, uh, we have the inquiry coming up on the party scandal. Uh, do you think Boris Johnson survives? I think he'll survive a little longer for sure. There's no one really primed to take him out. So it somewhat depends on the results of the inquiry. If it is these people were all working and there was alcohol there, there's something of a get-out clause, but if it's more damaging, then it's not looking good for Boris. And if he goes down, because we don't know the name, so I don't know who in the Conservative Party do you think would be the next man up uh, if Boris Johnson just can't survive this and has to step down? The two most likely are possibly Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Whether any would be as popular as Boris was way back when is highly doubtable, but they're the two primed people. 
Yeah. And we will follow up with this in the future with you, Portia Barry Kilby. Thank you so much for the time today. Let folks know where they can find you on social media and some of the projects you have going on so they can follow you. They can follow me with Portia BK on Twitter and also Young Voices. If you look up Young Voices UK on Twitter, you can find those too. Yep. She's about two lines down than my page on Young Voices. Uh, We appreciate your time so much. Look forward to having you back and you can update us on some of this in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Portia. Thank you, ma'am. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's update a story that we covered a couple of days ago. Addison Hosner from Young Voices joined us. An important story that isn't getting covered nearly enough insider trader in Congress. He brought us the statistics. It's a bipartisan part problem. Both parties have people that are guilty of this. When you look at the numbers, it is clear the fact that members of Congress are doing far better on stock averages and gains than the average public person. It's just obvious that there's something malfeasant going on here. That includes the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who is against any new regulations of Ginston, because of course she's not. Uh, She will be the first to point out that she doesn't trade any stocks, but her husband does. And part of this new push for legislation is to include family members. Uh, This little note from NPR, uh, in a longer piece, Uh, detailing most of what Addison had already talked about when he was on the program. And you can go back. uh, If you subscribe on the YouTube channel, we have what's called Hertel Good Talks. It's just the interview portions of each program. You can watch Addison's piece there. You can also share it on your social media. We'd love to have you. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. But on this NPR article, it's a good little touch up of what we were discussing. Uh, The White House Economic Director, Brian Deese, said on CNBC last week that the idea of a ban for lawmakers to match restrictions for the executive branch was certainly sensible. One of the things we need to do across the board is to restore faith in our institutions, whether that be Congress and the legislative branch or whether that be the Fed or other places. And so anything we can try to do to restore that faith, I think, makes a lot of sense, be said. That's a quote. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki sidestepped a question Tuesday because, of course, she did. When asked about the president's position on whether lawmakers should be able to trade stocks, she noted President Biden didn't trade stocks when he served in the Senate. Psaki said Biden, quote, believes that everybody should be held to the highest standards, end quote. But she added he'll let members of leadership in Congress and members of Congress determine what the rules should be. And quote, recently, the Federal Reserve added restrictions following a controversy over two officials' investments. Federal Chair Jerome Powell was pressed last week about the appearance of conflicts by Senator John Ossoff of Georgia. Uh, Member Addison uh, Hosner, when he was on, brought up that it is Senator Ossoff who is pushing this new push for legislation. Uh, He's a Democrat from Georgia, of course, (laughs) even though he's a new senator, the senior senator because of the way it worked out, along with uh, Raphael Warnock, senator from Georgia who introduced legislation to ban trading for lawmakers and their spouses last week. Powell noted his agency's new rule will, quote, effectively end any ability to actively trade of any senior Fed official. I completely agree that the public's faith that we are working on to their benefit is absolutely critical, Powell said. Uh, This makes all the sense in the world, whatever Congress comes up with. The idea here is that across the federal government, all three branches, 
they should have a uniform policy where you cannot trade individual stocks as long as you're in a position of authority in the federal government, nor can your immediate spouse or immediate family. There's ways to do it where you can put it in blind trust. Um, most presidents have done that in the past. Other big time officials have done that in the past. You could do those sorts of things, but there is no excuse whatsoever for federal officials, members of Congress, senators, and other high ranking government officials who have access to these companies, who are actively lobbied constantly by companies, who have information the general public does not have both on these companies and also on regulatory issues and lawmaking, they cannot do this. Uh, you can also have things like intelligence reports for things going on overseas. We've had scandals involving that where folks know that crises are coming overseas or things like oil prices may be affected and they can use those for ill-gotten gains. There should be a uniform policy all across the federal government at the high levels that your you and your spouse cannot do individual stock trades. It makes too much sense. It makes all the sense in the world to ban this, and they should do it. Public service has a price. You can put your stocks in a blind trust or something else, but you cannot use the information you get for ill-gotten gains. So you have the absolutely ludicrous situation we have now where Congress can get much better returns on their investment than the average person. We're not stupid. We're adults. We know that something ain't right here. It should be something easy to fix. We should pressure our Congress critters, especially right now in an election year, to get this done. We should be loud about it and make them police themselves much better than they would otherwise, because as a country, we deserve a better government. But if we don't demand a better government, we're going to get the government we deserve. More Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We always try to end on a lighter note or a happy note. This is an amazing, cool story. Uh, you know, drones are all over the place now. You see them in movies. You see them in those wonderful overhead tracking shots in media. Uh, you see people using them for sightseeing. You see YouTubers and concrete content creators uh, using them. Uh, here's a good way. A 71-year-old Swedish man can put, can't put into words how thankful he is for the new technology that quickly flew him into the small category of only 10% of people who survive sudden cardiac arrest. Uh, reading from the goodnewsnetwork.org here, the company, the man uh, has made a speedy recovery after the speedy delivery of a defibrillator via autonomous drone. The company behind the drone pilot project said it's the first time in medical history a drone has played a crucial part in saving a life during cardiac arrest. He was in his driveway shoveling snow in the Swedish city of Trollhattan. I hope we're saying that nice. Uh, in December, when the attack occurred, normally you have about 10 minutes to get help in such a situation, and the ambulance response times are often too long to save the life of the patient. Luckily, a telephone call was immediately placed requesting emergency services, and he lived in a region that had partnered with EverDrone's innovative life-saving program called EMAID, Emergency Medical Aerial Delivery Services. And basically what happened was the drone uh, delivered a defibrillator right in his driveway. They were able to resuscitate him, get his heart going, and he has made a full recovery. A cool piece of new technology, defibrillator via drone strike. 
so some good news from some technology that's in the headlines for bad reasons in places like Yemen and elsewhere as a weapon of war, uh, delivering some life-saving good in Sweden. I'm sure we'll start using those in the States as well. That'll do it for Hertel today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, however you're watching and or listening, whether it's watching on the YouTube or on the Facebook page for The Big Talker, or if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms or streaming services, we sure appreciate it. Uh, make sure you're leaving a comment and a rating. We would sure appreciate that. Uh, do the extra click and share it. Put it on your social media. Let people know where to find our little program where we turn down the noise of the news cycle and get the good information. We think there's a need for that. Uh, folks are finding it. We are growing week over week. More people are finding our little program. So we're going to keep doing it as long as you keep watching it. So from all of us, we greatly appreciate you. Until we talk to you next time, we hope you're well or hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow on Herdtail. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.